Appendices. Number 1. The Sons of Leah. Lest there be any misunderstanding, it is perhaps best to note that, although the sons of Leah were never loved by Jacob in the same way as Rachel's sons, it does not mean that they were reprobate, and the analogy is misunderstood if such is the conclusion. They were sons of the unloved wife. They showed in their lives the rift between Jacob and Leah. Jacob was suspicious of them up to his going into Egypt, and his dying words reflect no credit to some of them. Some may, and some may not, have been reprobate. That is not our concern. The point of the analogy is this. Even as Jacob unwittingly embraced a bride who was not his choice, with unhappy consequences, so well-meaning Christian thinkers have unknowingly reasoned on premises they assumed to be Christian. They were not aware that their Rachel was Leah. Augustine, a truly great Christian thinker, nevertheless introduced alien strands into the Christian thought by reasoning at times from Greek rather than Christian premises, without realizing his inconsistency. And it remains a constant temptation in every generation to use common and non-Christian presuppositions without an awareness of their contradiction to Christian presuppositions. Moreover, the analogy points further to the conscious and perverse embracing of Leah and the insistence that she is Rachel. Some contemporary thinkers self-consciously attempt to reason from non-Christian premises and are insistent that these are identical with Christian presuppositions or else can lead to Christian theistic conclusions. They embrace Leah and call her Rachel. They posit, for example, the God of existentialism, and insist that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Number 2. Van Til and Amsterdam It was with sadness that Paul observed, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Romans chapter 9 verse 6. With similar sadness, it must be observed that they are not all of Amsterdam, who are of Amsterdam. What then does Amsterdam stand for? Calvinism had for some years been steadily on the decline. Its defeat was all the more telling in that the intellectual caliber of Presbyterian and Reformed scholars was so clearly outstanding. The Church, by and large, however, increasingly rejected Calvinism, and the apologetics of these scholars had a declining impact and audience. In America, for example, the intellectual preeminence of the Calvinist scholars at Princeton was obvious, and there is no denying the greatness of its history to 1929. But that tradition, so richly appreciated by Van Til, nevertheless had as its assumption the belief that the natural man was able to do two things. a. To work up a natural theology that would show theism to be more probably true than any other theory of reality, and b to show that Christianity is more probably true than any other theory of sin and redemption. Behind this assumption lay two deadly presuppositions. First, the autonomy of the natural man, who could act as judge over reality, and second, the impartiality of the natural man, who was expected to assess honestly an interpretation he was in war against. Calvin had emphasized the perversity of the natural man's reasoning and its vicious partiality. Calvinism could not produce an adequate apologetics with the presuppositions of the natural man. To expect man, the covenant-breaker, to be impartial with regard to factuality is like expecting a thief to sit impartially as judge and jury over himself. And against this approach Abraham Kuyper rebelled, 
because it assumed the validity of two ultimate and mutually exclusive principles, the autonomy of natural man and the sovereignty of the self-contained God. Kuiper set out, therefore, to rid apologetics and Christian philosophy of these two mutually exclusive ultimates, and to establish Christian thought on the firm basis of the ontological trinity. This he did to an amazing and revolutionary decree, recalling Calvinism to its biblical presuppositions and to Calvin's premises. That at various points inconsistencies remained in Kuiper is not surprising but the unquestionable direction in Kuiper is clearly to eliminate the contradiction. These inconsistencies, however, have been appealed to by champions of the older apologetics, such as Ritterboss and Masselink. In support of their position, while in Bavink, we have a further emphasis and development of Kuiper's position. Despite bitter opposition, the Amsterdam view has flourished and has, as its leading European figures today, D. H. Vollenhoven and H. Doyeweerd, both professors of the Free University of Amsterdam, and in America, Van Til. The impact of this school has been more extensive outside the church circles and schools than within, and Doyeweerd can speak of the rise of a circle, though it be still modest, of scientific adherents, each of whom endeavors in his own department to make the newly developed philosophy fruitful. It is not our concern here to delineate the various facets of thought in these men, but to point to their common effort to bring human thinking to epistemological self-consciousness and to lay bare the religious presuppositions of all thought. They are Calvinists and regard Calvinism as Christianity come into its own, as fully self-consistent and true to its biblical faith. The Amsterdam position is being developed in the History of Philosophy of History by K.J. Pompma in sociology by H. Van Riesen, and in other fields by other men. Van Til, in the philosophy of religion and in apologetics, has developed these same principles. His own syllabus on the metaphysics of apologetics was written prior to Vollenhoven's publication of the necessity of a Christian logic or methodology, but on the whole Van Til has been slower in publishing than the men of Amsterdam. His relative isolation in America and the heavy burden of teaching and extensive lecturing, as well as his insistence on a very extensive research of contemporary and past studies in each field, have limited his writing, which, it is to be hoped, will now be more frequent. There has been no attempt to challenge the basic premise of this school of thought, namely, that two mutually exclusive ultimates cannot exist. The common attack on this school, as in Hackett's criticism of Van Til and all metaphysical presuppositionalism, is an insistence that common ground does exist between the two ultimates. Hackett remarks that unbelievers, like Christians, apprehend their experience as rational. What they fail to do is to carry through this apprehension to its highest explanation in the affirmation of God's reality. There is a basic epistemological structure common to all minds as rational and with a common world of facts. This to Hackett is a better starting point, and that it provides neutral ground than that of presuppositionalism. The first and most basic assertion of presuppositionalism is that one must start with the assumption that the God who has spoken in Scripture is the true God. Such an approach lands one ultimately in an extreme Calvinistic atmosphere, hardly desirable surroundings, apparently as compared to common ground with natural man. All men have reason in common and the same facts to deal with, 
Their problem is inconsistency rather than radical hostility. Unless the world is what the natural man says it is, there can be no reasoning possible. It is help. Hackett wants to hold to man's freedom and rationality in a void, as though they could exist in themselves and give independent witness to factuality and the nature of things. There is a tenacious refusal to face up to the fact that two mutually exclusive ultimates are presupposed. The barren and sterile reassertions of the traditional Armenian position are as commonplace as they are ineffectual. Its axioms of autonomy and common rationality are held to be universally binding and beyond criticism. But as Doyevird has observed, it is also not permissible to handle the so-called autonomy of philosophic thought as a theoretical axiom, which could escape from a transcendental critique. This latter does not require indeed that anybody should abandon this autonomy as a postulate. Its sole requirement is that such a postulate should be pursued in its true nature and that it should not pass from a criterion of scientific character. The axioms of natural man are prejudices based on and ruled by a basic prejudice that turns out to have no philosophical character at all, and that should be unmasked by a real transcendental criticism of philosophical thought. The resistance to this examination and the unwillingness to face up to the question of presuppositions is not surprising. Man resists the implications of his position and the consequence of epistemological self-consciousness, but he cannot evade them. Number 3. Bishop Butler's Analogy In Bishop Butler's Analogy, the Thomistic principle of the ability of the natural man, by a reasonable use of reason, to attain to the truth of the Christian religion was revived and given its classic Protestant formulation, one determinative of most subsequent apologetics. Reason is regarded as arbiter and judge over the meaning, morality, and evidence of revelation and of scripture. As a result of the analysis of the evidences, Aquinas and Butler both conclude that God probably exists. In the Alpha and Omega of this methodology, human self-consciousness is assumed to be autonomous, capable of sitting in judgment over God and his revelation, and intelligible without reference to God as creator and interpreter. The conspicuous fact in such thinking is its failure to see man as creature or to take seriously the creator-creature relationship and its implications. If their thinking is true, God is irrelevant to the human situation because he is neither creator nor determiner of things but only a common participant in being and history. It assumes also the impartiality and neutrality of man, the covenant-breaker. As a result, apologetics based on such an approach fail to present more than a probable God who is a pale shadow and imitation of the God of Scripture, no matter how well-intentioned its hopes and how Calvinistic its theology. The old Princeton method of apologetics was largely indebted to Butler, who in turn was indebted to Thomas Aquinas. Van Til's syllabus on Christian Theistic Evidences, 1947, explores the fallacy of this position thoroughly. As he points out, facts and interpretation of facts cannot be separated. It is impossible even to discuss any particular fact except in relation to some universal. Butler distinguishes between probable and demonstrative evidences, probable evidences leading from mere presumption to moral certainty, and demonstrative evidences giving immediate and absolute certainty. Butler believed Christianity to be probably true. 
according to his outlook, reason could determine what we should expect from a wise, just, and good being. And, having determined that, proceed, then to see if such a God is presented in Scripture or appears in nature. Thus, Butler declared himself ready to give up Scripture or any part of it, but let reason be kept so. However, by beginning with his concept of what reason must expect, he found himself inevitably interpreting all reality in terms of that expectation and finding a certainty, probable God, in his own reason's image. As Van Til has pointed out, Butler does suppose that the author of nature exists because he thinks rational argument will reasonably establish God's existence. But, in his methodology, he ignores that which he supposes, as though this were possible. He assumes a world of brute factuality, without order or meaning, and then assumes that an autonomous and unrelated reason is capable of establishing a world which cannot exist on his assumption of autonomy. What meaning, then, is there in the idea that we suppose an author of nature? Are we not, then, for all practical purposes, ignoring him? In other words, is there a God presupposed? Should not that presupposition control our reasoning? And in that case, can we be empiricists in our method of argument? This empiricism quickly found its end result in Hume's skepticism. As Van Til has clearly stated, Butler appealed to brute fact. To brute fact, Hume forced him to go. If he reasoned from brute factuality, he could not assume the facts he intended to prove. If he began as an empiricist, he could not, at his convenience, assume a priori ideas to hold his empirical data together in some convenient universal. Hume, as the more consistent empiricist, forced the issue. And the apologetics of Aquinas and Butler cannot escape the alternative he compels such apologetics to face. For Hume, the basic concept of thought is bare possibility, while for one who holds to an author of nature, the basic concept of thought should be God's complete rationality. Butler failed to see this basic alternative. Consistent empiricism leads to an infinite number of possibilities, which cancel every infinite number of probabilities, as Van Til has shown. Neither could Butler fall back on a non-Christian a priorism, because it leads to the same end result. Those who seek to prove the existence of God by an a priori argument on the non-Christian sort prove too much. If they prove the necessary existence of God, they also prove the necessary existence of everything else that exists. The necessary existence of God is said to be implied in the finite existence of man. That is taken to mean, in effect, that necessary existence is a correlative to relative existence. But this in turn implies that relative existence is a correlative to necessary existence. Thus God comes into existence by the hypostatization of man. Temporal things, together with the evil in them, are then taken as correlative to God. This is destructive of God's unchangeability. God, as well as man, is in this way made subject to change. Thus we are back at chance as the most fundamental concept in philosophy. A priori reasoning on non-Christian assumptions no less than a posteriori reasoning upon non-Christian assumptions, leads to the apotheosis of chance and thus to the destruction of predication. The apologetics of Thomas Aquinas and of Butler and their followers have had their natural consequences in development in unhappy conclusions. Yet they flourish, not in philosophical success, but in continuing appeal to new generations of thinkers. 
The reason is an obvious one. Arminianism can seek no other foundation and must try to find some kind of security in its unattainable position. Within the Roman Catholic Church, Thomism can hold sway by an official decree which arrests its development. Within Armenian Protestantism, without papal fiat, an arrested development is the order of the day. To begin with a consistently Christian position, to begin with the presupposition that the God of Scripture is the true God, has, as Hackett observes, unhappy consequences, landing one in an extreme Calvinist atmosphere. It is apparently better to avoid God and Calvinism than to resist the abysmal reaches of impossible probabilities. Thus Arminian apologetics continue, not in spite of their defects, but because of them. In terms of this, modernist theology has been more honest to its assumptions in following Kantian and existentialist thinking than has been fundamentalism in remaining with Butler. If Thomas Aquinas and Butler are right, then man had better make the most of his autonomy make himself the measure of reality, and declare that only to be significantly real, which he himself can categorize. There is only one absolutely true explanation of every fact and of every group of facts in the universe. God has this absolutely true explanation of every fact. Accordingly, the various hypotheses that are to be relevant to the explanation of phenomena must be consistent with the fundamental presupposition. God is the presupposition of the relevancy of any hypothesis. But even modernist theology, having followed Kant, is unwilling to be honest in its claim to autonomy. The biblical terminology, especially with neo-orthodoxy, must be borrowed to cloak the wolf of brute factuality. And again, this is not surprising. Epistemological self-consciousness is the onrushing direction of history bitterly resisted at every step and yet forced ahead by the very resistance to it. And, in the face of this, every attempt to return to the arrested development of Aquinas and Butler becomes more irrelevant to the history of apologetics. Number 4. By what standard? The crisis of present history is the collapse of the doctrine of man prevalent in Western culture since the Renaissance a concept that has established itself not only in Europe and North America, but is increasingly prevalent throughout the world. This doctrine, declaring man to be the measure of all things, has reduced man from the biblical doctrine of man created in the image of God to man, the economic animal. One of the unhappiest aspects of this crisis is the increasing irrelevance of the Christian church and of theology to the growing crisis of man. The church has been speaking for countless generations, but it becomes increasingly obvious that the church has been talking to itself. This situation has been especially discernible in reform circles. It is difficult to avoid the conclusion that reform theology has for many generations been indulging in a monologue which has no outside listeners, has been playing a game of solitaire, and has been increasingly isolated from all contacts with the world. Why this irrelevance of theology? Why this isolation of Reformed thought? Why the increasing indifference of the world to theology, and, to an extent, an indifference of theology to the world? To a great measure, the crisis of modern man, as well as the crisis of theology, can be traced to a lack of an adequate standard. The concept of economic man has collapsed, because man has found it an inadequate standard for life. Man cannot live by bread alone and the increasing ferment of modern society is a witness to this truth. 
in those areas where economic man has been most triumphant, as in modern American culture, dissatisfaction, restlessness, and a disturbed mentality increasingly witness to his impotence and to the recognition that he cannot live by bread alone. Modern secular man has found himself to be without a standard. On the other hand, theology has lacked a standard in evaluating the situation and has demonstrated its lack of a basic concept for understanding the world in its increasing irrelevance and impotence in dealing with those problems posed by sociology, biology, philosophy, and every aspect and sphere of contemporary life. Therefore, the basic question is this, by what standard shall we understand our present situation? By what standard shall we approach modern man? By what standard shall we approach the problems of contemporary life? By what standard shall theology govern itself? This problem is one of particular pertinence to me, inasmuch as this problem was one which plagued my thinking in my undergraduate days. It was not a lack of Christian background, nor a lack of knowledge of the scriptures, but a lack of theology and theological direction that made me helpless in the face of the contemporary scene. In the course of my thinking, it was the book of Job that gave direction to my theology. The book of Job made me a Calvinist. The book of Job made clear to me by what standard we must understand the whole of life. The book of Job, therefore, is of significance to our contemporary scene because it deals precisely with this problem of standard, of measure, of yardstick or rule whereby man shall understand. In the book of Job we find a problem which is commonplace in human experience. While what is posed for us in the book of Job is a particular and special test of the man Job, yet the experience therein can be duplicated in the lives of countless men. Many, a godly man, has been afflicted as Job was afflicted, has seen his life's work dissolved by catastrophe, has seen the wicked prosper while he has been brought low, humbled, and destroyed, has cried out with Job in agony of spirit and bitterness, and wondered at the ways of God that permitted such things to come to pass. The conclusion that Job reached, therefore, whereby he understood the standard of God in dealing with himself, and with all men, becomes especially relevant to our generation. When Job was first laid low, found himself stripped of all his possessions, his family destroyed, and he himself sick, both in body and soul, his immediate reaction was one of faith. Naked come I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job chapter 1 verses 21 and 22. Subsequently, as Job's wife saw his sickness and his utter misery, her summation of this situation was blunt and direct. Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips? Job chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. Thus we find Job in a situation not uncommon in history, a situation which might better be termed commonplace, and we find him accepting God's will with faith, with faith, but not with understanding. The conversations of Job with his friends reveal a passionate faith, an unswerving trust in God, but together with it a lack of comprehension. Why had God dealt with him so? Wherein is the justice of God? Again, we find in Job's three friends faith but no understanding. 
There is much that is to be commended in the discourses of the friends of Job, much that reveals faith and insight, but the basic lack of understanding of the standard of God, the standard by which man must discern all things, is lacking, and in that lack is the basic conflict between Job and his friends. The three friends argued with Job that affliction is always a result of sin. Job was disturbed by this very question, Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Job found it difficult to understand why a righteous God permitted a righteous man to suffer grievously. Not uncommonly, we find men protesting against the course of world history on the grounds that the course of history represents a triumph of evil. During the course of World War I, the dramatic critique William Archer declared that if there were a God, there could be no war. He challenged the existence and the righteousness of any God who existed by pointing to the horrors of that war. His question was easily answered. The wages of sin are and have been and will remain death. The sinful hopes of man are constantly frustrated. Such is the plan and providence of God. The course of history is what it is precisely because there is a God of justice. Man cannot live unto himself with all the profligacy history reveals and accept to reap anything except the whirlwind. And the course of human history reveals that the stars in their course fought against Sisera and continue to fight against every tyrant, against every nation, every people whose course is heedless of justice and heedless of God and man. It is not wars nor economic disasters nor the great movements of history that are a problem to faith. Such things are a verification of our faith and that they witness to the reality of the wages of sin and to the fact of consequence. What does constitute a problem to faith is the problem of Job. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do good people lose their only son in the course of a war, a godly son? Why are poor widows oppressed and robbed? Why the just men abused, turned out of office and publicly shamed for sins not their own? Why do the righteous suffer? Job's suffering, therefore, brought to the fore in his mentality a basic theological issue which is relevant in every age. How shall we understand the works of God? By what standard shall the course of human events be understood? Job's immediate reaction was to bewail his birth. He cursed the day in which he was born, expressed the wish that he had not been born or had been an abortion, and declared that for himself life was only a curse. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered Job reprovingly, Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hand. But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Remember, I prayed thee, whoever perished, being innocent. Or where were the righteous cut off? Job chapter 4, verses 3, 5, and 7. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his Maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. Job chapter 4 verses 17 through 19. Eliphaz further declared that affliction cometh not forth from the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground. Job chapter 5 verse 6. I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause. Job chapter 5 verse 8. Eliphaz asserted the principle of causality. 
Afflictions do not come out of the dust, nor troubles spring out of the ground. In other words, they are not purposeless, causeless, meaningless. There is in all of life a strict causality, and he pleads with Job to look into his past and to understand that there must be a particular cause as a result of which God has punished him. Men are all sinners. Eliphaz declares, and perhaps Job has a special sinfulness, some secret rebellion, which has merited this particular judgment of God. With Eliphaz's premise that this is a world of causality, we can all agree. At no point is Eliphaz clearly in the wrong in any of his observations. On the contrary, his analysis is an analysis of faith and manifests a belief in a universe governed by law. And yet the essence of Job's plight is completely missed by Eliphaz. Job answers in considerable anguish and distress of spirit. He feels that clearly all that has occurred to him is from God. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, the poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. Job chapter 6 verse 4. Both Job and his three friends are in complete agreement that God is the absolute sovereign, that all events have their origin in the will of God. We might declare that the basic theology of all the persons involved is a reformed or Calvinistic, in that the sovereignty of God is clearly acknowledged by every one of them and the divine causality recognized in all events. Behind all second causes, they see the hand of God and the providence of God. But Job protests against this activity of God, declaring, Am I a sea or a whale, that thou settest a watch over me? Job chapter 7 verse 12. Am I a menace to human society? Am I a menace to the purposes of God, that this special vengeance must be exacted upon me? Job does not question his own sinfulness. I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee? so that I am a burden to myself. Job chapter 7 verse 20. Job therefore recognizes that he is a sinner as all men are. He recognizes that his righteousness is of God. He recognizes the hand of God in all events. His problem is this. Why this particular judgment against himself? Why should the righteous suffer? By what standard shall he understand these activities of God? Bildad the Shuite speaks bluntly against Job's questioning. Doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Job chapter 8 verse 3. If thou were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee, and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Job chapter 8 verse 6. Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evil doers. Job chapter 8 verse 20. Bildad's premise is clear-cut. The Lord cannot be unjust. Therefore, man is at fault. Either Job is righteous or God is righteous, and because God cannot be declared unrighteous, therefore, Job is at fault. Job is unrighteous. Against this argument, Job feels helpless. I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? Job chapter 9 verse 1. He sees the majesty and the sovereignty of God which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Job chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. This is one thing, therefore, I said it. He destroyeth 
the perfect and the wicked. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covereth the faces of the judges thereof. If not, where, and who is he? Job chapter 9, verse 20, 22, and 24. Job does not challenge the righteousness of God. The question he raises is, how shall we understand the works of God? How shall we understand the purposes of God? How shall we understand history? God indeed is just, and if a man dare justify himself against God, his own mouth shall condemn him. But, Job insists, one thing remains obvious. While God punishes and destroys the wicked, he also punishes and destroys the righteous. There seems to be no standard of discrimination between the two. Job calls attention to that fact which is so obvious to all thinking men. The wicked do at times suffer and are punished, but as many godly and righteous men suffer as the wicked. History is a trail of tears shed by righteous men, godly men whose all was stripped from them. The pages of history have been bloodied by martyrs, but humble saints who have been subjected to treatment of an unspeakable nature, whose lives and possessions have been a prey to the evil. Job's problem is a real one, and only the theological syllogism of his friends prevented them from seeing it. Job therefore raised the question, what difference is there in being good and evil, in being righteous and in being wicked? If I sin, then thou markest me, and thou wilt not acquit me from mine iniquity. If I be wicked, woe unto me, and if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head? I am full of confusion. Job chapter 10 verses 14 and 15. The confusion of Job, therefore, is a critical one. What difference is there between the righteous and the unrighteous? What difference does it make to a man in the course of his life when both are alike treated by God? apparently without respect to their condition. Job's challenge was scandalous to his friends. Zophar, the Nasmathite, asks, Should a man full of talk be justified? Canst thou, by searching, find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? For vain, man would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. Job chapter 12, verses 2, 7, 8, and 12. So far again challenges Job's righteousness, summons him to confession and to godliness, declaring that, If his life be pure, thou shalt lie down, and none shall make thee afraid. Yea, many shall make suit unto thee. Job chapter 11, verse 19. So far as doctrine is commonplace in our generation, it is an evasion of the intellectual problem in the name of faith. Zophar refuses to accept the challenge of ascertaining by what standard we shall understand the problems of life and the problems of evil and declare instead that all these things must be taken in ignorant faith, that, since man is incapable of finding out the Almighty to perfection, therefore there must be no attempt to find out any of the Almighty's ways, no attempt at any kind of intellectual understanding of the problems of theology. Against such wisdom, Job rightfully protests. Again, he poses the problem. The tabernacles of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure. Job chapter 12, verse 6. Job poses the problem of evil and sharpens the problem by asserting the sovereignty of God. But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee 
and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? Job chapter 12 verses 7 through 9. There is a problem of evil precisely because God is sovereign, and because there is a problem of evil, and the problem so basic to the everyday life of mankind. An intellectual answer must be forthcoming. This answer is not a substitute for faith, but a necessity for the faith which holds to the sovereignty of God. Job makes his faith absolutely clear. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. Job chapter 13 verse 15. Job never claims perfection or sinlessness, but he does challenge God to make known why he has been the subject of such special vengeance why evil in such special force has been unleashed against him. He asserts clearly the doctrine of original sin. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Job chapter 14 verse 4. Thus Job sees clearly the basic theological issue without sliding the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. There follows then a further round of arguments in which the friends of Job attempt again to restate the syllogism that, since God is righteous, Job must be at fault. Therefore, Job suffers because of a particular sinfulness on his part. Job again admits that he is a sinner, as are all men, but he insists that, humanly speaking, he is not worse, but better than most. Into this situation, another argument is injected by a young man, Elihu who declares that he had previously refrained from speaking because of his youth. With the typical impatience of youth, he sets aside the arguments of his elders, only to restate in essence their position. He misunderstands Job's position by declaring, I have heard the voice of thy words, saying, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. Job chapter 33 verses 8, 9, and 12. Elihu's solution to the problem is in part this, namely, that all suffering is not always punishment for sin, that it is often remedial, sent by God to strengthen and purify his sons. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man, to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened with the light of the living, Job chapter 33, verses 29 and 30. Again, as in the case of Job's three friends, the doctrine is true enough. But true doctrine is not a cure-all which can be applied to every situation. A good medicine is not applicable to every illness. Penicillin is not the answer to cavities and teeth. Indeed, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8 declares that if we are not disciplined by God, then ye are bastards and not sons. But is this concept applicable to all situations? If, for example, we fall from a tree, and breaking our neck, perish, have we learned a lesson which is of value? Can this be called an action whereby God manifests his discipline, his chastening? What educational value can such an action have? What educational or disciplinary value is there in any event that destroys people, that robs them of their wherewithal? that leaves them completely stripped and helpless. That much of God's dealings with us are disciplinary. There can be no doubt, but to apply this concept to the problem of evil is evasive. Thus the friends of Job and Elihu all give pious and good advice, but their advice was not applicable in this particular case. The answer to the problem is given, 
not by any of the friends of Job, but by the Lord himself, answering Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job chapter 38 verses 2 through 7. God here declares that the heavens and the earth were created before Job, that God's creative purpose transcends the life of Job and the purposes of Job, that Job cannot expect that God's providence move in terms of himself when not only the creation, but the Creator has priority over Job. As the Lord continues to answer Job, he speaks of causing it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness, wherein there is no man to satisfy the desolate and wasteland, and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth. Job chapter 28, verse 26 and 27. This is a subtle and yet significant point. This, in fact, is the central point that God is making against Job. Rain falls on the earth, not for the purposes of man, but for the purposes of God. It rains where there is no man, and the bud of the tender herb springs forth in places far beyond the eye and the will of man. The functions and the purposes of nature thus transcend the life and the will of man. And if nature transcends man in her functioning, how much more does the Almighty transcend man in his purpose and in his will? The Lord further declares, Will the unicorn or the wild ox be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow? Or will he harrow the valleys after thee? Job chapter 39 verses 9 through 10. Let us assume for a moment that Job had bound the wild ox to his purpose. Or let us look for a moment at the oxen in the stables of Job's estate. Does the wild ox in the hills or the ox in Job's stable have the right to declare that the purposes of God are evil because they themselves lack their freedom? Because the wild ox no longer has his pasture, and the ox in the stall must leave his hay to go out and pull the plow at the bidding of a servant, is the nature of things out of joint? Because the ox must leave his hay, or an ass is unjustly beaten, is God unjust? Is the purpose of God to be challenged when an animal finds itself frustrated? The question, therefore, is the basic one. By what standard can we judge? Can the will of either the wild ox or Job be the standard by which God is judged? Can we ever assume that anything in creation, that any created being, can declare that the frame of things is out of joint if their own purpose and their own will is frustrated? I too have suffered, not always justly. Is God unjust because I suffer? Is the purpose of God evil because Job is stripped of all his possessions and his family? What is the purpose of creation? What is the standard whereby all things are to be judged? What is the yardstick, the rule of all things? God challenges Job, declaring, Were you there when I created all things? What was the purpose of creation? Is it the chief purpose of God to glorify man and to enjoy him forever? Or is it the chief purpose of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? The yardstick, Job, declares the Lord, is not your purpose. You have no right to rule things out of court, 
as purposeless or as unjust in terms of their relationship to you, because you are not the yardstick. You cannot say, because things affect me thus, and so, therefore the whole frame of things is out of joint. Not Job, but the Lord is the yardstick, and the only yardstick by which things in heaven and earth can be judged is the Lord and His purpose, the ontological trinity, the sovereign God in Himself. Thus, what God required of Job was that he recognize his sovereignty in every aspect, recognize that the only standard for judging his own personal life and his own problems was not in terms of himself, but in terms of the sovereignty of God, in terms of the triune God in himself. Job could not declare of any event in the course of his life that this thing was wrong because it impressed and affected him adversely, since all events in the life of Job could only be judged in terms of one standard, the purpose of the sovereign God. When Job acknowledged these things to be true, the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than the former. Thus there is no understanding of the problem of evil, or any problem that confronts man, from the man-centered point of view. Job and his friends all agreed on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, but they were inconsistent in their faith, in that they approached the problem of evil from a man-centered point of view. They declared that God's dealings were to be determined in terms of man, that man's justice or injustice, that man's sin or his righteousness was the determining fact in the course of events that therefore consequence, causality, was to be understood merely in terms of man's inner life. God declared such thinking to be fallacious and insisted that the only valid standard is a God-centered standard, that no problem, the problem of evil or any other problem is understandable except in terms of a God-centered rule, a God-centered theology. By what standard, what measure, what yardstick, therefore, shall we understand the problems of our day, the problems of theology, the problems of our church life? The book of Job gives us a clear-cut answer. There is no hope except in a God-centered theology. By what standard? The triune God in himself. We have seen that Job and his three friends shared alike in a faith in the sovereignty of God, but, as they faced the problems of their day intellectually, they were incapable of applying the sovereignty of God practically to their problems, but began instead with the problem of evil viewed from a man-centered position. They made no surrender of the sovereignty of God ostensibly, but in actual practice a man-centered approach involves a surrender of that sovereignty. The decline of Calvinism can be understood in similar terms. Calvinism has proved again and again in time of testing to be a failure. Repeatedly, Calvinist churches have collapsed, have drifted into modernism, or have disappeared from the church scene. The decline of Calvinism in America has been typical of this development. In the main Presbyterian bodies, the USA, the U.S., and the United Presbyterian Churches, the Reformed tradition was clear and unmistakable. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the Catechism, taught and believed, and yet these churches lost their clearly Calvinist character. The Presbyterian Church in the USA, the Church of Hodge, Alexander, and Warfield, is today neo-Orthodox in its theology, and any honest analysis of that situation will lead to the recognition that the seeds of decay are to be found in the very theologies of some of the most notable Calvinists in the Princetonian tradition. In faith they were clearly reformed, men of scholarship, men of consecration, 
men to be respected, and yet in their intellectual application of their faith, they went astray in that they attempted to meet the challenge of the natural man by beginning on common ground, by beginning with the assumptions of human reason. They tried to fight Goliath with Saul's armor, and they lost, because Goliath is fought only by the Lord's power and the Lord's might. It is precisely to this situation that Cornelius Van Til addresses himself with his rigorously Calvinistic philosophy of religion. It is an intellectual development of the implications of a Calvinist faith. Historically, Calvinism has asserted itself theologically and surrendered itself philosophically. This position of surrender has unhappily been termed Calvinist philosophy and has prevailed in virtually every sphere of life. It manifests itself now in the criticisms of Van Til. Unhappily, these criticisms were most severe in the Calvin Forum. As one who, through the years, subscribed to the Forum, hoping to find therein a standard borne by Calvinism against the errors of the day, I found it especially distressing. The Calvin Forum has been weak through the years in its critique of the heresies of modern man, in its critique of modernism, socialism, communism, atheism, and in its critique of modern man's insistence on the autonomy of his reason. On the one occasion that the Calvin Forum has spoken out clearly and sharply, it has been against Van Til, revealing thereby its own defect and manifesting that it has been touched at a sore spot in its own life. The nature of this attack on Van Til is also clearly seen in James Don, A Theology of Grace. Chapter 7, entitled The Ontological Trinity, Van Til's basic principle of interpretation, witnesses to the fact, indeed, that Van Til is philosophically Calvinist, and that his basic principle of interpretation is the ontological trinity. That not only does Van Til, by faith, hold to the sovereignty of God, but philosophically makes the triune God, the ontological trinity, the starting point of all Christian philosophy. Yet against this, James Don an ostensible Calvinist, protests, writing, Why does he himself select one aspect of God and exalt it to the highest principle of interpretation for every problem? The mere recognition of the Trinity as a concrete universal does not provide a Christian principle of interpretation. Van Til overlooked this rather obvious fact when he selected not God's grace, nor any other of God's virtues, nor all of God's virtues, nor Christ himself, but the one many principle as his highest principle of interpretation for any and all of the problems of history. Any theology that demands that the principle of interpretation be one or all of God's virtues establishes value as ultimate rather than the ontological trinity. And any theology that seeks as its basic principle of interpretation Christ rather than the triune God seeks to reduce God to his relationship to man rather than to establish God in himself as the basic principle of interpretation. Existentialism denies God in himself, the ontological trinity, and recognizes God only in his relationship to man. And any adequate critique of existentialism must begin with the ontological trinity. Dane does two things which clearly reveal his basic hostility to Reformed doctrine. He denies that God's counsel includes double predestination, that is, both reprobation and election. God only elects. He does not decree reprobation. Thus, God does not determine all things. The sovereignty of God is thereby set aside. Next, 
Dane insists that Adam had the freedom, in an ultimate and final sense, to obey or disobey God's commandment. The conclusion is obvious. God's sovereignty is limited in order to make Adam's freedom absolute. This is the doctrine of autonomous man, more dangerous in theological dress than in its obvious honesty in the existentialism of Sartre. All of Van Til's critics hope to meet the unbelief of modern man by seeking common ground with him, the common ground being modern man's insistence on his autonomy. From this, they'd hope to develop a Christian philosophy. But, according to Scripture, the common ground between men is never to be derived from man's attempt to be his own God, but from the fact of creation. Not the wisdom of the natural man, but the wisdom of God is our starting point, and an inescapable one for the unbeliever as well as the believer, since that which may be known of God is manifest in them, or to them, for God hath showed or revealed it unto them. Romans chapter 1 verse 19. This is Van Til's common ground, rather than any ostensibly valid autonomous reasoning. Massalink, Cecil de Boer, Jesse de Boer, Orlebeck, and Van Halsema all want to grant to natural man the validity of his thinking in order to convert him. They begin with the man-centered, fact-centered, or idea-centered approach and hope thereby to establish Christian faith. But the sovereignty of God is never ascertained by granting validity to man's claim to sovereignty. The impotence of Job's friends in dealing with the problem of evil was most apparent as they confronted a suffering man. The impotence of the traditional apologetics, beginning with the natural man's philosophy and reason, has been apparent in the history of Christian thought. It convinces only already convinced Christians and cannot speak to the natural man. Inevitably, it leads even the Christians into wayward theology. The critics of Antil say that we must begin with facts, or with the universe, with reason, with man's freedom, or with the ultimacy of chance. What we begin with is ultimately all that we believe in. Our given, our starting point, is ultimately all that our universe allows for. When we begin with man, we end up by eliminating God insofar as he is offensive to man's freedom and autonomy. When we begin with chance as ultimate in any respect, we thereby establish chance as supreme over God. When we begin with brute factuality, ultimately, all that our universe contains is brute factuality. If the universe is our starting point, then the universe is also our point of conclusion. And when man's reason or freedom is our given, it is also our God. Whenever we find in any Christian institution an emphasis on a rational theology, any principle of criticism, whether it be in literature or elsewhere, which establishes the dichotomy of form and matter, we have not Christian philosophy, nor the Christian philosophy of education, but Aristotelian or Thomistic philosophy. Van Til, as a consistent Calvinist, begins with God, the triune God, in every avenue of human thought, and insists that only the ontological trinity, God in himself can be the Christian starting point for philosophy. For Van Til, there are no brute facts. That is, nothing exists in and of itself, and everything can be truly understood only in terms of the triune God and his creative will and purpose. Therefore, it is impossible to make brute facts, the universe, reason, man's freedom, or any other thing our starting point, since none of these things exist in and of themselves and all of them are understandable only in terms of the triune God. 
since all things are understandable only in terms of the triune God, only the triune God, the ontological trinity, can be the starting point for Christian philosophy. Job and his friends affirmed their faith in the sovereignty of God, affirmed it to a degree far more consistent than that of most modern Reformed Christians. And yet all of them proved to be defective in their faith and under the judgment of God, because in their thinking, in their philosophy, they approached the problems of life, and, specifically, the problem of evil from the man-centered point of view. They began with man rather than with God, and thus they could not account for the problem of evil, of suffering, the problem of sin, nor could they give any account of providence that was anything but offensive, because their starting point was man-centered. As a result, they were judged by God and required Job's intercessory prayer. The issue is the same today. What is our standard? By what standards shall we approach the problems of philosophy and the problems of everyday life? If we begin with anything other than the ontological trinity, with the sovereignty of God as intellectually applied and systematically delineated in every aspect and avenue of human thought, we end with the destruction of Christian theology and the deterioration of Christian life. God declared to the friends of Job and to Job himself, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? He went on to say in effect, I made all things, and before all things I am. Can anything be understood apart from me? By what standard, by what standard have you dared to approach the problem of life? Any standard other than the Trinity, the triune God in himself, is an offense against God and the destruction of Christian faith and life. The only standard that can be offered to this sinful world, the only standard which Calvinism can consistently adhere to, is the triune God, the ontological trinity. Any man who attacks this standard is attacking the sovereignty of God. No double talk can hide this fact. Whether explicitly or implicitly, consciously or unconsciously, all who attack this starting point in philosophy attack essentially the sovereignty of God in order to assert the sovereignty of man. The peculiar venom which Van Til is aroused by his gentle, kindly, and consistent philosophy is explicable only in these terms. He has laid bare the essential fact that the sovereignty of man prevails rather than the sovereignty of God in much of Reformed thought. The Word of God, where faithfully preached, and the Word of God, where faithfully expounded and applied in preaching, in theology and philosophy, arouses either joy or hostility. Historically, this hostility has most often manifested itself as an ostensible defense of the faith. Indeed, the very opposition of Satan to Christ appears in the form of Antichrist, a mock Christ, an ostensible Christ offered to men as the true means of salvation. Against all attacks on the sovereignty of God, against all such resistance to the triune God, God in himself, as the starting point for all theology and philosophy in life, itself our standard must be this, whether it means the serving of brother and brother, that to God alone belongs dominion. This is our Calvinistic battle cry. We Christians have forgotten what the saints of old knew too well, that Antichrist works from within the church, and that he has his sway in us whether and wherever we surrender the fullness of the faith at any point in life or doctrine. In the wise words of the saints of a past century, supposing that Antichrist and all his adherents were subdued, what would it avail us if we have an Antichrist in our own body? 
the whole counsel of God must be asserted, and, because our God is a God of both sovereignty and grace, his mercy and forgiveness must be extended to erring brethren in so far as it is possible, without offense to the discipline of the church, that God might be made manifest through us in both his glory and his grace. To rejoice in another's waywardness or sin, or to use it to our advantage, is to give Antichrist a victory in life while we ostensibly gain one in doctrine. May God grant to his church both firmness and grace in dealing with wayward brethren. Both are indispensable, and we are summoned to worship God and reveal him both in his majesty and his mercy. We must earnestly contend for the faith, and also, like Job, pray for our erring brethren. Number 5. Biographical Note Cornelius Van Til was born into a large family on May 3, 1895, in the Netherlands. His family migrated to the United States in 1905, when he was 10 years old, settling in Indiana. The family farmed near the borderline of Indiana and Illinois, close to Chicago, at Highland. The family faith was reformed, and church membership Christian reformed. Van Til's great love and abiding interest in Kuiper and his works are a notable aspect of the man and date back to his youth. He delights in reading him and warms to the mention of his name. Van Til studied at Calvin College, Grand Rapids, Michigan, to prepare himself for the ministry, enrolling in 1921 at the Calvin Seminary. Subsequently, at Princeton Seminary and University, he studied under such men as C. Hodge, W. B. Green, G. Voss, R. D. Wilson, W. P. Armstrong, J. Gresham Makeshin, and A. A. Bowman. A. A. Bowman, then chairman of Princeton University's Department of Philosophy, offered Van Til a graduate fellowship towards his Ph.D. at the university, which he secured in 1927. In 1925, while still a student, he married a longtime hometown friend, Miss Raina Kluster. He remained at Princeton as a student for five years, 1922 through 27. Subsequently, he was ordained and called by the Spring Lake Church of Classis Muskegon in Michigan, a small town on Lake Michigan, some 30 miles from Grand Rapids. The following year, he was called to teach at Princeton Seminary, but resigned at the end of the year in dissent at the seminary reorganization. He returned to Spring Lake, at first refusing to serve either Princeton or the newly organized Westminster Seminary. The call from Westminster was only accepted after Drs. Machen and Alice traveled to Michigan to seek his and Rev. R.B. Keeper's services. He was thus one of four Princeton professors who served on the Westminster faculty, the others being Robert Dick Wilson, J. Gresham Machen, and Oswald T. Alice. Unlike the others, Van Til was not a member of the Presbyterian Church USA. However, after going to Westminster, he became a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. At Westminster, he has exerted a steadily growing influence on many graduate students, both American and foreign, and has been in steady demand as a special lecturer at schools and universities, as well as at conferences across the country. He has moreover been an increasingly controversial figure, by breaking with the old Princeton apologetics and by calling attention to the inconsistencies in terms of their healthy presuppositions in the Amsterdam apologetics, 
He has aroused the ire of the traditionalist and Reformed and Presbyterian circles, while his analysis of neo-Orthodoxy has made him anathema in those circles. Despite this controversial nature of his writings, he stands forth increasingly as one of the outstanding and central figures in American Calvinist thinking and a true son of John Calvin. Because he brings into so clear focus many of the important aspects and implications of Christian thinking, his importance and stature can scarcely be assessed at this early date. Suffice it to say that in Van Til and the men of Amsterdam, we have one of the most significant developments in the history of Christian philosophy and theology, developments the importance of which cannot be ignored. Van Til is not only a philosopher and theologian, a born teacher, he is an outstanding and persuasive lecturer and preacher, possessing in his lecturing the gift of simplicity. A warm-hearted and humble man, he draws love and loyalty to himself and gives it with equal readiness.